basic goal was that I was going to disintermediate everything that I was doing as a professor for the university. I was going to basically just find a way to do it online without the institution. So how do I cut out the middleman, but continue to do and everything I'm currently doing as a professor and, and create and provide the same value, but without a university and on the internet independently. I'm Chris Howsworth, a grain originator and accountant living in Pocahontas, Iowa, and you are listening to the Vance Crow podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Today, we take a wild ride into philosophy and the future, where I taught, I had a chance to sit down with a man named Justin Murphy, who runs an, a brand and a website and a newsletter called Other Life. And it was a really interesting conversation. He left academia to then start up his own courses that he runs online. And we talked about Rene Girard and mimetic desire and scapegoating. And really, this was the first time many of the viewers have heard me talk about Rene Girard, but that we've ever gotten to do a deep dive with somebody that actually knows about his research from a totally different angle than I do. And then we start talking about the way in which uh, distributed servers and the cryptocurrency is going to change the future world that we're living in, how it will make it so the sensors that are happening via Facebook and Twitter and Google can't, won't be able to block information and the positive and negatives that will come from that. This was a really interesting conversation, and I'm so glad you're here for it. If you are somebody that loves these types of conversations, know that there is a network where we get together after the interviews are done, we chat about the podcast, we also talk about other things going on in our lives, people are sharing things they're working on, their goals, and uh, you would be more than welcome to join. If you're the type of person that's been listening to these interviews and you enjoy it, you ought to come check out the Articulate Ventures Network. You can do that by going to network.articulate.ventures. Thanks so much. And now on to our conversation with Justin Murphy. Justin Murphy, welcome to the podcast. Hey, man, how's it going? Thanks for having me on. So uh, you are somebody that is very interesting to me because you have left academia. You decided, hey, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to leave the, the prestigious world of academia, although I don't know how prestigious it is, and have started um, talking about philosophy and selling courses on your own. How in the world did you decide to leave the comfortable world of academia? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I just had this strong sense that I was on a sinking ship and then I was doing stuff on the internet and that just felt like a ship where the tide was rising every every passing month. So it was just this strong uh, perception I had uh, from everything around me that was basically just like, oh, this one way of doing things is getting worse and worse, it feels. And this other way of doing things is getting more and more promising in every way. So I was just like, you know what? I'm young enough. I think I, was, I, I kind of felt like I was just young enough to make this kind of massive career risk. If I was a little bit older, if I had already had kids, these types of things, I, I, I knew I probably wouldn't be able to make that kind of massive risk. Um, and I was like, you know what? I don't have kids yet. I'm only 31. Around then was when I kind of first got this conviction i'm like you know now's the time to to, to take the jump and, and make a bet on on this different kind of future and these different ways of doing the intellectual life that i believe will become more and more prominent and it was really just a bit of a gamble but that was the the basic logic behind it and what sort of a academic background did you have how much had you sunk into this life and where were you where were you teaching oh yeah ton a ton i mean i had given my whole adult life to academia basically i decided i wanted to become a professor from you know sophomore year in college so around around 20 years old or so i i kind of 
really was like, this is what I want to do with my life. I want to live an intellectual life at all, at all costs. I will figure out how to do research and thinking and writing at the highest level possible as my main vocation in life. Um, come hell or high water, that was, that was the goal. And, and I was dead set on that from around age 20 or so, roughly. And you know, at the time, academia seemed like the best way to do that. It's kind of the most obvious and natural way to do that for, for most young people who feel called to that kind of life. And so that's what I did. And I, I, I basically buckled down and gave everything I had to, to winning that game. I, I did a PhD. I uh, not only did a PhD, but I, you know, worked extra hard, hustled extra hard. I come from a working class family, so I didn't have a safety net. You know, I was very much like, I, if, I, if I'm going to do this, it needs to produce a real job and there, I need to have real money uh, because I had nothing else to fall back on. So I, I worked extra hard and was extra strategic. I even in the halfway through my PhD, I kind of changed uh, research focus to be more marketable, to be able to get a job. I switched from doing political theory and philosophy, which is what I was always interested in. I realized I wasn't going to get a job that way. So I uh, learned statistics and went all in on quantitative methods and actually got really good at it and pretty sophisticated. And so I, I was giving everything I had to winning this game, basically, is, is the context I'm trying to give you here. And I, I won the lottery after my PhD and got a good research gig, the, the, the type of job that academics all dream of and, and fight for really hard. It's very, very competitive. I got a tenure track gig in England at the University of Southampton, and it was, it was a good department. And it was, you know, a research heavy gig, not the kind of like teaching heavy gig that um, is more common, but, but quite draining and exhausting. And it's, it's not really what academics are after. So I basically, I got the dream job. I, I made it, I really made it. And then I, from there, I, I, I gave everything I had to that gig. Like I've always had these interests in philosophy and theory and all that, um, the stuff that I do now on the internet. But I, I, I didn't do any of that during my career. I did what academics have to do, which is you publish uh, in the specific niche that is mo most likely to get you prestigious publications. And then through those prestigious publications, you rise the ranks uh, in, in prestige within your academic niche, basically. I, I did that. I did nothing but that kind of uh, buckled down, focused, patient, obedient, um, strategically sophisticated path from about age you know, 20 to about age 31. And I did nothing else other than that. So, um, and I made it, I got tenured in England. Uh, the British version of tenure is a little bit different. Uh, it's not quite as, as, um, as, as it's known in the US, but it's basically the same logic and I, I made it. And it was only then that I started taking my liberties because I was like, this is the whole point, right? This is the dream. This is why you pay your dues uh, to get that kind of dream job security where you have a nice salary and you just get to think and write and speak and, and, and say what you think is true, right? That was, that was my mental model of it. Uh, but it turns out that that's actually kind of a myth. And I, I took it literally, I guess I'm a naive working class kid who thought that that was real. <laughs> and uh, I guess I, 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 I uh, I was supposed to have got the memo between the lines that uh, you're not actually supposed to do that. Once you get tenure, you're, you're actually supposed to continue, uh, you know, being being politic and 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 being strategic with what you say and what you do. Um, but I took that very literally. That was why I got into the game. And once I started doing that, it was very clear that it was like um, not going to be the lifestyle that, that I dreamed of. And that was that was another kind of factor in, in how I made the leap out of it. What were you putting forward that uh, the academic establishment was not uh, happy with? Yeah, people always ask about this. And I, I think it's a major misconception that people have. It's, it's like not any particularly profound or provocative 
research findings or anything like that, uh, or it wasn't even political, really. It's, a, it's actually much more a matter of just lifestyle and norms and uh, in a certain kind of uh, prestigious professional uh, milieu, there is just a certain set of expectations around what it's reasonable to act like or think like or be like. And I found that to be the real problem. And that was kind of what I was constantly uh, brushing up against and, and constantly having problems with. So uh, the example I like to give is like the first time I started, the, the very first time I can remember having a kind of clear uh, problem or uh, being kind of reprimanded explicitly about anything that I was saying or doing. It wasn't like some kind of provocative, uh, you know, red pilled like theory or something that I had. It, it was because uh, I, I um, took mushrooms in Amsterdam <laughs> with my wife one weekend uh, where it's more or less legal, right? It's not like, it's not even um, naughty really to, to, to eat some psychedelic mushrooms in Amsterdam. It's like, you're allowed to do it basically. Um, and nowadays there's more and more research that psychedelics are actually very good, uh, you know, in moderate doses. It's, it's, it's pretty much, uh, there's really nothing bad about uh, me eating mushrooms with my wife in Amsterdam and I'm having a lovely time. But I posted some videos of my wife, of myself and my wife tripping on mushrooms. It was just like a cute little, we had a lovely weekend in, in Amsterdam and we were on mushrooms one day and I posted, I took some videos and I posted that to Instagram. Um, so in every way, as far as I could tell, completely innocent, nice, um, and, and even quite beautiful. I thought they were really, I thought, that, I thought they were, I thought they were very nice little videos. It's just a perfectly nice, wholesome and beautiful, interesting weekend. Um, exactly the type of thing that, you know, an intellectual, I think would generally like to do with their life here and there, you know, it's like, um, to, to me, that's just a perfect little example of, of, a, uh, exactly what the intellectual life means is thinking, being creative, exploring life, exploring the different aspects of, of human experience and, sh but most importantly, sharing them honestly and transparently, just, just reporting on, on the human condition as honestly as, as one can. I feel like that's the obligation of a, of a genuine social scientist, uh, worth his salt anyway. And, but that's the kind of thing that you're not allowed to do, right? Because, you know, drugs are, are, are dubious. It, it looks a little, it looks a little off color, you know? And, and so the idea that I posted a video of this in Amsterdam was like, uh, you know, got me, got me reprimanded. Basically I, I was told, you know, you're not supposed to do that kind of thing. Justin, what are you doing? Um, you gotta, you gotta kind of be more professional. So that's the kind of, that's the kind of conflict that, um, the, the true intellectual life in my mental model has with academia. It's, it's, it's not a political controversial research kind of thing. It's more just like, I had a vision of what the genuine intellectual, what the free intellectual life looks like and feels like that was constantly just, um, running up against, um, just general bourgeois professional norms. Yeah, it's interesting because I think a lot of people, if you've never been involved in academia, you don't realize that in order to get a PhD, you have to go to the frontier. You have to go all the way out to what everybody has already known. And then in order to get your PhD, or historically it has been that you have to discover something new. And the, the thought was, if you've gone out all the way to the frontier and you've discovered something new, it will inherently change you. So when you come back to try and be a part of academia or the regular world, you're going to be a little bit different, which is why you want this tenure, not just for the freedom of speech that we have in this kind of Western, certainly US tradition, but this idea that, you know, when you really go to the edge, 
you you're changed in some way and now i don't think anyone even recognizes that that's why they do tenure that that because you've pushed people in their studies so hard that something's actually changed in them but now it's much more about um you know it's almost like a corporation right there's almost indistinguishable right you have a reputation we have a reputation they need to align and uh, I, so I could see both sides of this and think it's it's hilarious. How surprised were you that this was a, a, a thing that they didn't accept? I guess not too surprised. I mean, I get it, right? I'm not I'm not naive. I, I, I understand there are professional norms. I understand uh, the, the logic behind it all. But I guess what I was a bit surprised by was how how the academic, how do I put it? The, the, the prestige that academics themselves have is much weaker relative to the power of kind of bureaucrats within academia. I think, I think this was worse than I had expected. So I knew that, you know, doing the, I've always had this kind of propensities. I always like to just be a little provocative, I guess, whatever. Um, but, uh, so I, so I've seen this like throughout my life, but I figured I would be able to be a bit of a gadfly for a while before it would be like a major kind of existential conflict between me and the university. So I, I, I did predict this kind of conflict, but I didn't know it would kind of accelerate so quickly. <laughs> um, and I think that that was in part because I, I had not realized um, how much the university is dominated by bureaucratic mindset. Like you made a mention before about how academics one of the distinguishing characteristics of a professional academic, uh, you know, to do a PhD, to even to even you know pass your your PhD dissertation, let alone get a good job and and, and advance in your career, you have to you have to innovate on the frontiers of what is known, as as you very well put it. Um, and in my mental model, uh, in, you know, how I was raised in in grad school and 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 what I always thought was, you know, <laughs> when you're able to do that, uh, you're you're never gonna you're never gonna uh, let some bureaucrat tell you like what is true and, and what is not and and what you know it's like the whole point of the whole point of making it to that frontier and paying your dues is because from then you're like okay i call the shots on what is real you know it's like sure bureaucrats have these rules or whatever but um and in, in fact um what you find in contemporary academia is much more like what bureaucrats say is real and true is just like taken for granted as as what is real and true and my my feeling in academia was very much like I didn't, I didn't do all of this independent research and, and, and develop a sophisticated independent scientific perspective on the world uh, to have some bureaucrat tell me like what is real or good or true or false. Um, and yeah, that, that was kind of what was maybe th that was worse um, than I expected to a surprising degree, perhaps. And do you think that the contemporary academia is different than say in the past? Is this different than the 70s or or the early 1900s oh, without or... a doubt yeah yeah we know this for sure it's well documented and you can also um find ample kind of anecdotal data on this if you just talk with older academics right so uh you know in my time in academia i, I had uh the good fortune of befriending a lot of older heads um and they they would tell you stories uh you know in the in the 70s, for instance, it was really easy to get a job as an academic. I mean, if you could just do a PhD, right? So if you were kind of in the elite um, people who could, you know, do a PhD and and do teaching um, you, and, and research, there were jobs galore because the university system was first opening up to mass education, right? So there was um, massive demand. They needed a lot of professors. 
And you could basically get a tenure track job just on the strength of like a decent PhD dissertation. Whereas now you need to have multiple articles published at prestigious journals. It's, 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 it was just basically way less competitive um, and way more, way cushier, basically. Um, every, you could, pro, you could pro progress way easier. Everything was looser, um, less competitive. And it, and it meant like people could uh, be like crazy, right? Uh, people, you know, might know of famous examples like Timothy Leary, who was, who was, you know, a PhD um, back in, back in the seventies um, and around that time, there were a lot of academics who were crazy people basically in, the, in their, in their private life and their, but, but their private life and their research life were very, very overlapping. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite well-documented, I think. And, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of stories you'll find in academia to back it up without a doubt um, as academia has become more competitive um, it's become basically like, a it, it's as brutal, a kind of corporate rat race as, you know, becoming like a, a consultant at McKinsey or something like that. It, it's, it's absolutely the same kind of, uh, competitive career bureaucracy, uh, logic as, as any other kind of in, highly coveted corporate track. Uh, and in the seventies, it just wasn't like that. So. So if you got inside of the uh, the walled garden, right, you're there and you're at least, you know, you you have a page coming, your stability with your life and career. Where did you head off to when you decided you were going to leave the walled garden? Yeah, well, I'm an American and uh, my wife's an American and we had moved to England just to to do the job. And it was cool. And we, you know, maybe could have seen ourselves settling in England for good if if I you know really felt at home in the in the academic trajectory there um but it was never a particularly natural feeling to be in England at all um so we had a natural kind of gravitational pull back towards America and honestly that's another thing that's relevant here because I mean your audience might may or may not find this interesting but um America is awesome basically and I didn't realize how awesome America is until I, I lived in England for five years and I, no hate on England I mean you know they were they were you know, they hosted me uh, graciously and um, it was a, it was an interesting place to live for, for five years. Um, but like, I am an American, I'm like a blue blooded American. I'm, I'm dyed in the wool American in my personality and spirit. And, and um, you know, people like me really can thrive much more easily in America than in England. Um, and, and that's another kind of part of, of this story. Um, so yeah, that's, those are, those are kind of relevant contextual factors there. So when, you know, it started becoming clear that, academia was not really the ideal path for being an intellectual in my, in my view. Um, and I saw this other way of doing it on the internet. It was a natural, it was natural to just, uh, we're going back to America and rebuilding from there. So that was like a two years ago now or so almost three now, actually. Yeah. More like three. And, um, yeah, we've just been rebuilding in America. And now you teach classes that you put online. And I think the reason the executive producer, Ben Anderson, um, put me uh, on with you is because you're studying something I've found uh, an amateur love or fascination with, which is the the uh, philosopher Rene Girard. And uh, so I'd be really interested in how did you encounter Rene Girard? And when you're explaining this, you know, somewhat obscure French um, anthropologist to the world. How, how do you how do you give a summary of who he is and what he's describing? Yeah, sure. So a little bit of relevant context here is that when so when I left academia, the, the basic goal was that I was going to disintermediate everything that I was doing as a professor for the university, I was going to basically just find a way to do it online without the institution. So how do I cut out the middleman, but continue to do and 
everything I'm currently doing as a professor and, and create and provide the same value, but without a university and on the internet independently. And so one of the obvious things to do uh, was courses. And because, you know, it's something I'm good at, something not a lot of people can do well, and something I've built a lot of, you know, cultural capital and being able to do. And so then from there, I did a couple experiments. Um, and then I did, I did some myself and, and they were moderately successful. But then I started thinking, oh, you know, I could build something bigger and kind of more impressive if I got some other good people to teach courses kind of within my system. I could move faster, grow more courses and make more of an impact uh, faster. And so I also started thinking just what are, who are the thinkers and what are the ideas that are most important right now or most interesting to people right now? What, what's most likely to just, just what's most of the current moment that really needs to be taught and thought about and that people would be interested in. And so Rene Girard was one of, of my answers on this. Uh, and I happen to have a colleague and friend on the internet uh, named Jeff Schollenberger, uh, who's something of a, of a Girard uh, specialist himself. And so I brought him on to do this course. So, so shout, out, shout out to Jeff Schollenberger. People can check out his uh, blog and podcast at Outsider Theory. I think it's outsidertheory.com. Um, and so he taught the Girard course in my, in my course catalog. Uh, and the reason that I wanted to do a course on Girard was for a few reasons. One is that he's, he's a Christian. And I think there's a massive latent interest in Christianity and kind of, uh, pre, let's call it pre-modern forms of, of you know, intelligence and, and social, social theory, like perspectives on, uh, on the world and society and, and how to live in the world that are essentially pre-modern or even anti-modern. And I think Christianity is just historically you know, in, in the Western, in Western civilization, Christianity is, is uh, kind of the, you know, the elephant in the room, really. And so, so that was one part of my thesis is, is a massive latent interest in Christianity, which I'm also interested in, I happen to be a Christian. And I'm, you know, I, I, I teach, I write and teach like a kind of typical, you know, um, secular, uh, modern rationalist academic or whatever, but but I happen to be a Christian. And uh, so Gerard, I think it's just one of the most interesting uh, an impressive and sophisticated, uh, but genuinely Christian philosophers or, or anthropologists or thinkers. Uh, so that's, that's one part of it. Um, and I think the second part of it is that uh, a lot of his most well-known ideas, like the, scape, the, the concept of the scapegoat and um, uh, the concept of mimetic rivalry, are just very easy to see in the world right now. Uh, and so that's why a lot of people have kind of turned to him. Uh, and in the current moment, and why why his name is a, is kind of hot right now is, is because people see the the natural and intuitive applicability of of some of these key ideas he's associated with for contemporary political situations. Uh, and so, yeah, those those two factors made me think, let's do a course on Gerard. Yeah, I mean, it, when you encounter Rene Gerard, you at first you're like, this seems so simple as to be like, how how powerful of an idea could it be? But then you start applying it to to the rest of the world. And then he starts breaking apart Christianity. I watched one of his lectures at a um, at a peace building seminar, and they actually did this whole thing where they did a little play acting before uh, the whole thing began. And they said, um, you know, the line in the Bible where um, Jesus tells the followers, you know, if somebody asks for your cloak, just, you know, go ahead and take off your cloak and give it to him, but also give them the undergarment too. And I never really understood that. In fact, it always seemed like a real kind of, you know, 
sissy way to behave like it just never it never um dawned on me and what they did by doing the play acting was the guy actually got all the way down to his underwear and handed the guard all of his clothes and all of a sudden you start realizing like whoa that really would be a really radical way to behave or if somebody smacked you and instead of you responding by hitting them back you actually just give them the other cheek to smack like that that actually is a really ballsy move and so yeah. you start breaking apart some of the things that gerard was saying and it's it's uh it's interesting because if you've grown up like i grew up catholic if you've grown up in the christian melu many of these things seem just obvious or or already known or yeah that's the way you're supposed to do it if you're the good person but you never really stop to think about what is the why was this so uh radical and I think that was some of Gerard's brilliance was taking Christianity and, and demonstrating what the radical nature of it really was. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it for sure. I mean, what I like about Gerard is that he's a he's a legit Christian, but, you know, he does do his work in this contemporary, you know, uh, civil society, secular rationalist kind of way. And he really makes, I think, some of the strongest, most compelling arguments in favor of Christianity, but from a social scientific perspective. And I think that that's, that's one of the things that's most interesting about him, you know, and uh, alluding to what you're saying about the, the radicalism of it. I think, I think you're absolutely right about that. Um, Christianity, according to Gerard was this radical kind of anthropological rupture, basically it, it was, it was, it was a rupture in, in what it means to be human and, and what it means for a society to, to be a society really in the history of human civilization. It, you know, has clear kind of anthropological and, and political and social uh, significance. It's like a, a social and political revolution. And, you know, the essence of that is, is basically this, uh, what it does around mimesis and, and mimetic rivalry. So to give your listeners just a, a very brief kind of uh, recap or summary on one of the, one of the key ideas in Girard, basically he argues that all of, all of kind of human cultures before Christ were uh, they they all suffered from this tendency towards uh, mimetic conflict, uh, which means that um, societies would almost all the time, eventually, at some point, um, be vulnerable to these sudden waves of uh, where everyone in the society basically um, attacks some relatively innocent, um, but uh, kind of different or unique member or outsider or entity of some kind like there were just he noticed that there were always these periodic um, events where pretty much everyone all the humans in the group would converge on some entity who is usually different in some way um, stands out in some way but is not particularly guilty of anything objectively they're just different and this everyone in society would basically converge on that different entity and stone them or kill them or hang them or torture them and kill them or whatever. Um, and he basically uh, located the, the logic of this phenomenon, which, which uh, he argues you could observe across all of kind of pre-Christian human cultures. Uh, he located it in the nature of, of human desire, basically, uh, because, and the basic idea here is, you know, uh, because human desire is, is social, we learn what to desire from what is desired by the people around us, there's this intrinsically kind of zero-sum aspect uh, to desire. So once everyone is 
uh, taking their cues from what other people desire, you can easily see that there's a tendency for desires to converge on the same thing. It becomes competitive. And there's always going to be these kind of um, uh, irresolvable uh, conflicts for this reason. And then the, the, the entity that society decides to, to converge on and punish, that's called the scapegoat. It's basically a way of uh, releasing all of this kind of pent up conflict from the irresolvable zero sum conflict uh, that mimetic desire creates. And so he reads, Gerard reads Christianity as basically this kind of profound anthropological solution to this problem. And the basic idea there is that it, it, it pretty much inverts, it inverts the, the violence that we are naturally inclined to uh, put on to the scapegoat. Uh, it kind of inverts that he at, at one point Gerard I think it's in um, I forget which book it is but at one point he he calls Christianity um, uh, a, a, it's like a trap it's a trap for Satan or something like that so what it does is it takes it takes these mimetic instincts that we have to to kind of kill the scapegoat and it inverts them and it actually turns that natural instinct that societies have to kill the scapegoat it turns that into a kind of pro-social positive sum game that that is sustainable and can expand through peace and love basically um and what you were referring to before about turning the other cheek uh it's basically or you know the famous the the, the famous anecdote about um you know not being the first to throw a stone um at all of those ideas are basically specific anthropological inter interventions against uh, the, the, the mimetic conflict and scapegoating problem. And it turns all that on its head to turn, to make it a pro-social kind of expanding positive, uh, dynamic. And, and that is literally the, the, the moral revolution that was the basis for Western civilization as we know it. So that's, that's the quick TL, TLDR. Yeah. The, when I first encountered it, so I have, um, you know, lived in Africa and I actually watched a mob form up and, and kill people. And I saw it not, wow. not just once, but several times. Wow. And when I was listening to Gerard talk about these things about, you know, Christianity is really an antidote to the mob. At first I thought like, that no, this can't right. be right. Like, that's like, what are you talking about? And then he goes in and he's breaking down stories that I've heard you know, whatever, 30 some odd times when you go to Easter mass, right, where they're describing anyone can join a mob, anyone can be a part of it, because our natural tendency is to doing that. He points out, like, look at Palm Sunday, the people were laying down palms saying, we're so glad you're here. We don't even want your sandals to get dusty. And by the end of the week, they were all prepared to crucify him. And even Peter, um, like, couldn't resist the pull towards the mob. I mean, when you really hear Gerard describing you know, Peter saying, denying three times that he was with Jesus and that, no, he is a part of the mob. That's when it dawns on you that Christianity's real um, amazing power that had been ubiquitous in my life, ubiquitous in the lives of all these Christians that have known things is this avoid the tendency of the mob, because as to your point, like the mob is going to grab people and and try and get that cathartic release. We, we, we think something is horribly wrong and we want to get rid of this person who we're blaming on and on, and then everything will go back to normal and everything will be okay. And now we're watching this play out in our streets, right? We're watching, you know, people burn down, you know, Krispy Kreme donuts and gas stations and all kinds of things because they have this pull that like there's some evil in the world and we need to get rid of it. And it just, without Gerard, um, 
describing something that always been there. It's like a fish trying to understand water. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Yeah. And so I think Gerard basically is one of the most important thinkers right now because it shows that in a really compelling kind of historical anthropological detail with in a way that's empirically sophisticated. And, you know, although he's a Christian, he doesn't, you know, take refuge and, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't invoke faith for his arguments. He's not like, he doesn't write like a theologian. He writes like a social scientist or, or an anthropologist and something of a philosopher. And um, I think people see it very clearly today because mob dynamics are so salient in, in the West today. You know, you see, you see a lot of social patterns right now where people do seem to be kind of aping into um, these, these uh, rapid group formations that it seems pretty clear to people paying attention that uh, there's not a lot of honest independent judgment from the entities involved. It's like mostly people following other people in these kind of uh, crazed, enthusiastic, you know, mimetic uh, formations mostly. And so I think that that's the reason why uh, people see the value of these ideas right now in the West. It's interesting to think about the how ubiquitous Christianity was, and and you can certainly point to different eras in our lifetime when Christianity was used to some pretty brutal ends. Like, just go read about the sixteen hundred um, when when the Dutch were using Christianity on their on their sailors to be able to to tell, to put all kinds of morals on them, and they could just treat them just horribly and, and brutally. But you think about Christianity in the modern American era. As Christianity's gone down, so since 2000, we went from 70% of people saying we belong to, I belong to a church to now below 50%. Is this something you believe will rebound? Do you think people will start looking around and saying, whoa, the, this mob action seems really uncomfortable. And while it's hard for me to get up on Sunday morning to go to church and sing songs, I think I need to do it because I don't have meaning. Or is it going to take something else? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I definitely am not making the case that there's any reason to expect some kind of profound, um, you know, revival of, of Christianity in the West in, in, in quantitative terms. Like I, 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 you know, as you mentioned, if you look at the data, it's not very promising for, for this. And so um, I think that you have to bite that bullet, at least how things look empirically. But I do think what you're going to see and what you are already seeing is the devil is going to be, the devil is in the details. I think that all of the interesting action really has to do with small groups nowadays. And so there's definitely going to be a revival of Christianity among a, a certain set of people, which, which you're seeing, right? So although you're seeing secular declines in kind of things like church attendance in, in the West, um, if you look across the board averages across the country, um, it doesn't look good. If you look in, into very niche pockets, you see pretty extraordinary kind of revivals and a lot of and a lot of interesting kind of cultural energy, right? So um, on place and and it's it can be very very small. It can be very very niche. It can be like you know uh, trad Catholic e girls on Twitter and people like Ross Duthat and uh, you know there are but but in in those niches where it is um, passionate and it is felt and it is uh, really being seen, the 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 energy is 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 substantial and and that's going to i think uh continue to grow so these niches are all going to become more and more intense and more and more um evolved is, is my is my kind of mental model of of kind of america in general i think it all of the action in the next you know few decades really is in very very it's all fragmentation it's all nicheification it's all small groups um 
so I think averages will continue, will be, you know, incredibly misleading, but what's going to happen is that basically like, you know, the anti-Christian people are going to intensify and splinter off into their many different kind of, uh, uh, anti-Christian niches, the Christian people are going to splinter off and, and fragment into, into their different niches and a million of shades in between. Uh, and, and what's really going to happen that's, that's most interesting to me is that there's going to be this mass kind of competition of an, of an extraordinary number of fragments and niches. Um, there's going to be hardcore like lifestyle competition, basically. I think this is what you're going to see because, you know, you're seeing more and more things like uh, homeschooling and just general in every direction you look, people want to go in different directions and people have more and more, they have the technology and the communication infrastructure to do so. And so that's what you're going to see is, is uh, people going small groups going in many different directions. And then in 50 years, a hundred years, it's going to turn out that some of those directions were way more successful than others. Um, and some of those models, are, some of those niches are going to have superior models of what human nature really is. And the ones that have the better model of human nature are going to way outcompete the ones that don't. Um, and so that's where I would think the, the, the interesting future for kind of Christian or, or, or somewhat anti-modern, um, more, let's call it traditional, we'll just call it traditional ways of, of, of life are going to win out. Uh, it would be in the longer term after this current period of mass fragmentation and niche competition. So you used a, a phrase, the trad Catholic e-girls, but for people that don't know what trad is, what describe that. What does it mean to be a trad? Oh, yeah, sure. So there's just like on the internet, a kind of niche subculture of men and women. I mentioned e-girls because uh, it's funny, but uh, men and women who are just interested in kind of trad values. Trad is just an internet term for traditionalism, uh, but it's, it's kind of more aesthetic. Um, you know, there's there's uh, an interest in all kinds of of trad uh, values and aesthetics like traditional architecture, traditional urbanism, uh, traditional values, you know, like traditional family values. Uh, and it's, I guess, what's what's meaningful about it that would be of interest to to your audience, possibly if they, if they're not aware of this kind of internet subculture, because uh, I guess it sounds a bit trite or it sounds like who cares. But I guess what's interesting is that it's. Um, it's like a revivification of these things in, in, in youth culture terms. So it's like, um, it's becoming cool is, is another way to put it. It's, um, traditionalism made cool for the youth culture where like actual young people who are creative and, um, you know, uh, ambitious and sexy and, you know, all of these things that are associated with, um, you know, thriving, growing youth cultures, uh, they have their own version of traditionalism or Christianity, and and that's that's kind of what's new and interesting, uh, because for for quite a while, these kind of trad values or Christian values were were the antithesis of, were the antithesis of cool. Um, but now you're seeing on the internet significant, you know, small uh, niche for sure, but very non-trivial, um, significant um, pockets of, of cultural energy where these trad values are becoming, uh, cool and fashionable and really, uh, kind of energetic for, for, for young adults in particular. Which is interesting. You know, if we think back to the concept of the mimetic desire, right? The, the, where as soon as you start seeing a small group of people, they want these things that come from being a traditionalist, then all of a sudden more people start saying like, Oh, I've noticed that guy wants that. Well, maybe I should want it too. And the, uh, you know, the, the idea that maybe there's a large enough gravity well to be able to change 
society in some way do you um you know because really that's what you're describing you know all of these niches are mimetic competition people uh defecting and this is your term actually that i read in a fascinating article you wrote on the the urbit and the telos of creator economy you had a, a term called prestige defection which is where people go from one area where they used to have prestige kind of like you did in academia and saying hey i'm going to throw that off and i'm going to go in a different direction because i believe there's an you know an arbitrage opportunity there's an area where the where the prestige is bought for very low but it's a different way of looking at the world and then being able to to raise up your your um your own prestige or your own mimetic desirability for others yeah yeah that's an interesting connection there for sure. I think, well, prestige defection is basically what I was talking about with my own story. That, that was pretty much the, the move or the decision that I made this kind of defecting from prestige uh, because I think basically the returns to institutional prestige are decreasing, I, I think actually faster than people realize. And um, the opportunity to simply build cultural capital within totally autonomous private communities is actually the the value of that or the payout to that the payoff to that is is growing faster than people realize uh and so that's one of the reasons why i think you're going to see this um mass accelerating kind of fragmentation of 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 cultures basically um yeah yeah that that's right and i think that basically where that pans out is that when people defect from prestige as you're seeing now, you see it with, you know, things like all the New York Times journalists who are now just doing, you know, leaving, leaving the prestigious New York Times to do a Substack is just one example. My example with academia, many other examples. The, the trajectory of that is going to intensify. And so it's, it's going to become people building their own towns and cities, probably. It's going, it's going to, uh, become people building their own universities it's going to become people building not just their own you know independent journalist outlets but basically their own independent reality systems basically and you're already seeing this um people just don't really know how to appreciate its its magnitude because it's so it's so chaotic but it, you know the the rise of conspiracy theories as really really massive kind of public influential kind of public social intellectual formations uh is is a good sign of what's to come you know, the, the conspiracy theory, cons uh, the word conspiracy theory is used to kind of denigrate people, but um, whether you agree with certain theories or not, you know, it's it's kind of a polarizing term. So it's probably not the best term to use because some people believe them, some people don't. And I'm not even trying to have an opinion on on them. One person's conspiracy theory is another person's, you know, uh, totally, totally true, verified uh, reality. And but this is my point. What gets called conspiracy theories, um, there's going to be more and more of those. And pretty much everyone is going to have to pick their their own conspiracy theories every if you believe it it's true but to everyone else in society it's a conspiracy theory that's gonna that's gonna continue uh until until we basically have fundamentally different realities and, and there's gonna be thousands of them is how i think about it yeah and the funniest thing about a conspiracy theory is it's not a conspiracy theory um it, it's a conspiracy theory not until it becomes true or false but it's like do enough people believe in it that we can be accepted so i recently had um 
Alina Chan on the podcast and she and Matt Ridley wrote a book on the lab leak hypothesis. And uh, like I put it out there and I didn't get much pushback, but I had some other friends that had tweeted it out. And then they're like, oh my God, I got just walloped by people saying that I was participating in a conspiracy theory and they don't know if they can trust other things that I say. And like, you could tell this like mimetic uh, rivalry, right? Like you're either with us or against us. And if you believe in this thing, this is outside of the normative belief of our group. So you're no longer allowed to be here. And this fractionalization that you're talking about it's it's a curious thing because we have more information than we've ever had before and yet it feels like truth is much much harder to get at yeah yeah i i I think that's right i think we're only starting to see the the beginning of 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 what this is going to look like it's going to get way crazier i think you know so people look at like something like um Take, take as, a, as a, I think, one of the best examples, uh, QAnon, right? So some people, of course, will call it a conspiracy theory. Some people will call it just, you know, um, the truth, right? And uh, wh- wh- wherever you come down on it, um, it's, I think it's a really good uh, example uh, to kind of fix, fix ideas around because there's going to be, whether you like it or not, whether you agree with it or not, there's going to be more QAnons. Uh, but every time, it's going to be a little bit more technologically sophisticated. So imagine... You know, imagine a world where QAnon could not be shut down, thanks to let's say um, uh, crypto crypto infrastructure, for instance, uh, permissionless, truly decentralized, uh, technically unstoppable uh, communication infrastructure, uh, and imagine incentives also getting involved, right? So, um, you know, imagine that QAnon has a has a token, right? And and QAnon is basically uh, paying his followers to find new clues for him. Um, and, and imagine that all of this communication between QAnon and his followers is taking place on, uh, cryptographically secure, uh, absolutely private sensor proof, uh, communication protocols, um, that you couldn't, you couldn't shut them down if you tried to, because there's no point of failure, failure, right? So, uh, QAnon was essentially shut down by concerted effort by big social media platforms, uh, Realize it got so massive. It, it was incredibly massive. It's something like at, the, at its high point, something like around forty or fifty percent of Americans um, believed somewhat. I, I believe the survey, the survey data said that, that forty to fifty percent at least believed somewhat uh, QAnon. Uh, so it had massive name recognition, massive influence, and a lot of people really liked it. Even had um, you know some some Congress people, right? And so. Uh, it was really only can stopped. i jump in i think yeah. like most yeah. people don't realize like unless you are into coding or you've you've been involved with cryptocurrency like most people don't realize that almost everything you see on the internet is given to you served up through some other party right most people spend most of their time on the internet not on individual websites but through a through a window like facebook or twitter or whatever and so these ideas that are conspiratorial or just different than mainstream ideas, like for a while they were able to spread, but then there's pressure on these companies to get rid of them. They have both social pressure internally and political pressure. Mm-hmm. So they start shutting down. But as, as the rise of cryptographic currencies of the ability to have your own servers, so in, in systems like Urbit where the people that are there actually run their own internet that is, um, 
using the same pipes as the as the rest of the internet but on a different system so now all of a sudden facebook can't say hey that facebook group that was spreading those things we're just going to shut that down now there's the ability to just be like well there's no one that can shut us down uh, unless you come and literally unplug the server from my wall or you cut my my internet connection to from my house you can't shut it down yeah, absolutely. So that's what people need to buckle up for because it, it's coming whether we like it or not. And and so you're gonna you're gonna see uh, another QAnon, but eventually it's gonna be totally unstoppable, right? And if you look at how fast QAnon kind of rose to power, like I said, something like forty or fifty percent of Americans more or less believed some of it. Um, had massive name recognition. That was why basically Google and YouTube and Facebook uh, more or less kind of coordinated to shut it down all at once. And that's the only reason it, it went away. That's going to happen again, something similar, but this time no one's going to be able to shut it down. And so whether you like that or not is quite beside the point because guess what? There's also going to be uh, another one, a competitor one, and then there's going to be a third, and then there's going to be a thousand QAnons with different uh, personality factors, different demographics, different uh, political ideologies. So just imagine a world of like 10,000 QAnons where it's a completely different model of, of political reality with extremely intense uh, stories and ideas and memes that are highly, highly engaging, uh, but totally different in each of the different communities. So, so fundamentally different realities are going to emerge in a way that is unstoppable uh, because it's on this radically decentralized uh, technological layer. Uh, which we're going to have, I, I think, without a doubt. I, I, in my opinion, Urban is kind of the most interesting and compelling uh, competitor for that 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 layer. That's that's inevitable, um, but time will tell. And so this is important, though, for thinking about what we were talking about earlier in the conversation when it comes to, uh, you know, the prospects for traditional values or the prospects for um, small communities and kind of what's going to and and you know a kind of uh, humane Western, uh, uh, you know. Judeo-Christian uh, ethics and 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 politics versus the, the kind of crazy mob dynamic dynamics that seem to be kind of taking over the West. You know, when we think about those all of those problems that we see in the contemporary status quo, and we try to think through how's it going to pan out, who's going to win, what what tendencies are going to win or lose, uh, you have to take you have to you have to think about it from the perspective of of ten thousand QAnons <laughs> operating on unstoppable infrastructure, uh, because you know. I think a lot of people are scared by something like QAnon and generally it feels to a lot of people like it has a bad connotation. This means like crazy people are going to be able to brainwash the populace, but that's only what it looks like in the short term, because what it, what it really means in the long term is the, these 10,000 QAnons are going to have to compete and they're going to have to provide real leverage to human beings to live at, at the end of the day. The, the QAnons that win are going to be the ones that promote the ideologies and mental models and, and practices and norms that actually lead the largest number of people to thrive, basically. And, and so I do think in the, in the, in the long run, the, out, the, the equilibrium outcome of this process is going to be the one where the actually correct theory of human nature and the actually most beautiful um, aesthetic sensibilities and the actually most good and true ideas and philosophies and norms are going to be the ones that win because those are going to be the ones that are genuinely most um, uh, flourishing for for human for 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 humans be, because they most fully kind of represent the the truth of human nature and so that's a really beautiful long run uh, perspective in my view it's it's not as as pessimistic as people often think.
Yeah, I think that uh, the the long term perspective that you're describing is uh, only achieved once um, once turbulence has been gone through, right? Like we're already watching what happens when people live in two completely different realities, where you have you know one group of people that think that uh, the police are now just the most brutal institution and they're actively out there killing people that are minorities and and that are different than them, and then the other people that think you know, absolutely not. This is the most, you know, sanctified group and it's peaceful. And if we don't have them and give them more strength and all these, and the, these two uh, realities can no longer be reconciled. And they're only going to fractionate in more and more groups over more and more topics that people feel ever more deeply uh, passionate about. And I, uh, so I go out and speak with farmers um, all over the country and you can hear these farmers talking about how, um, how under assault they feel every single day of the year, like, you know, like about whether they're able to use their water or whether they're able to use chemicals to grow their food. And they're at the point where they're literally saying things like, I think we've been peaceful for too long. I think we, um, you know, have let this go on for too long and that, th and that our problem is that we haven't actually pushed back. And the, the striking thing is once violence begins, which I think it already has, I don't think there's any way out of it until until one side conquers the other in some in some meaningful way. Yeah, but it doesn't have to be as zero sum and and as conflictual as people think. And as it, it kind of sounded like you're, you're maybe thinking in, in your comment there, because in what what it it rather should be and probably will be is in the in the medium term is it's just people going their own way and trying their own things. You know, so like the the farmers who feel the way you're describing, I don't think that they need to, you know, engage in any kind of particular offensive against, you know, the status quo government. Rather, they're going to figure out how to organize for themselves more autonomy and more uh, freedom to basically organize life along their preferred terms because of the technological infrastructure that is that that is that is coming and, and that is already underway. It, that technological infrastructure is going to allow them to have their freedom and to thrive according to their own values and practices more effectively and more cheaply than ever. And that's going to be, and so they're going to, they're going to be able to do that in a way that the government's not going to be able to stop basically. Um, and so I, I don't think that conflict um, in, in a zero sum uh, kind of antagonistic sense is necessarily the thing to expect in, in the short term or the medium term or the long term, um, because I think exit, is more important than voice right now and exit is becoming cheaper and 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 more effective than than voice or debate or conflict basically um so let's talk about so what I do you mean by exit say. versus yeah. voice yeah so here i'm i'm uh, invoking uh the the book by albert hirschman called exit voice and loyalty uh it's a very important and influential book it was written in 1970 and he basically just he was a social scientist and he and he kind of modeled out uh how when organizations or institutions decline something goes wrong and how they function there's more there's really only two ways to respond as, as a member or as an individual uh, with a stake in that organization or institution and you can either exit or voice uh, in other words you can either speak up or you can walk away um, those are kind of two ways to to, to to deal with it you can right try to fix it from within uh, by cooperating and using your voice to 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 push for the change that you think needs to happen from within, or you can walk away. Both of those are ways of 
kind of communicating uh, your dissatisfaction. And, and those are both ways of exerting some kind of change. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, I've, I've recently made the argument that uh, if you actually read that book and you, and you go back over and look at his, his model, uh, for almost all significant kind of political conflicts today, um, the only solution that makes sense for almost all of them is exit and voice. According to Hirschman, if you, if you, if you take his model seriously, um, according to Hirschman, um, it makes almost no sense to use your voice um, for complicated reasons, which you'd have to kind of look into the book to, to, to spell it out. But um, that's the background for what I'm referring to here. And um, so what I think technology is doing is it's basically lowering the costs of exit and increasing the payoff, the payoff to exit um, while it's making voice uh, kind of more and more irrelevant, basically. And so that's what I think farmers and people like that are going to realize more and more is that it's never been easier for them to basically build their own systems uh, completely outside of, of, of the control of, of governments. Uh, and so they'll just I think exit I, the infrastructure uh, altogether. I, I, uh, I'm, I'm familiar with the concept and I think the challenge that it uh, struggles to address is that in the world of farming, there is only so much water. Either you must use roads, there must be fuel, you you have to actually make purchases of chemicals that are regulated. Right. And so on some level, um, exiting would mean like, literally giving up everything that you have of value in order to to survive. And so I like to me, it's a it's a difficult thing to, um, to reconcile, because they're saying, look, if if I am not allocated the water that my farm um is required to grow these things you know i'm i'm out of the game and i so how do you, how do you think about that when you're talking about physical realities as opposed to just digital realities yeah yeah for sure i mean i you're absolutely right that uh for for groups of people like farmers who um are kind of deeply embedded in these physical systems which are themselves deeply embedded in uh governmental uh sovereignty you're absolutely right that um it's not so easy. It's not so straightforward is what I'm saying. But I just think that that, I just think that that means the, the people like farmers are, they are going, they are going to be on the later end of, of these transformations rather than the earlier end of these transformations. Uh, but I, but I do think that these transformations are going to be universal and sweeping and, and it will, it will kind of take everything up eventually. So I think your point is absolutely right. Um, but the point really just says that People like farmers will be will be towards the end of 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 the curve, but um, to kind of sketch what I mean by that or what it would look like, it's it would have to do with the the sources of government itself, right? And so I think um, you're right that at the moment farmers have to worry about things like regulations and and access to water and things like that, but but the nature of of the U.S. government, for instance, is is probably going to be changed in. Uh, really, really profound ways that are are hard to predict right now. Um, because in some ways, like something like Bitcoin, it basically is a competitor government. Because, um, you know, for people who maybe don't know anything about this, so uh, Bitcoin is, is is kind of the leading cryptocurrency, the first cryptocurrency, um, the, the one that with the biggest market cap, a lot of people think that it's, it's kind of the only real one. Uh, we don't have to get into that debate. But um, it's a it's a self-enforcing monetary system. So uh, you know, right now in the U.S. government with the U.S. dollar, the U.S. the U.S. government controls monetary policy. The U U.S. government um, can can increase the money supply. They can uh, decrease the money supply. The Western governments currently have sovereign control over 
money supplies. Um, with Bitcoin, no one has control over the money supply. And to the degree that this thing continues to take off, um, right now it's around a, a, a trillion dollar market cap, um, but it's been here for like you know 13 years now almost. Uh, and it, it's only gone up every year. So, uh, and this is a completely decentralized uh, system with absolutely no controllers. It exists on you know computers around the world. Um, and, and that's it. There's, there's no point that can be uh, squashed really by governments. Uh, and so it is literally a competitor monetary system, a competitor monitor, a monetary government that if it, so, so it's not speculative to say that here you have an example of a novel technological system that is literally taking over monetary governance. Uh, if it continues to succeed, um, what it will mean is that governments as we know it literally lose a current form of sovereignty that they have which is which is their monetary sovereignty okay so that's not that's not really speculative this is uh this is not really like pie in the sky crazy sci-fi stuff this is like this has been happening for for 13 years and if all it needs to do is continue uh for this to pretty much be the case and so that's just one example um but it's if that is true uh and it appears to be it's not it's somewhat speculative but it's not at all implausible or too far-fetched to imagine the same process happening with other forms of, of governmental control and sovereignty, such as uh, control over things like water or such as control over things like regulations. You can absolutely imagine um, all of those things being governed in, through these uh, absolutely impersonal uh, systems, which are essentially market-based. It, it's just hardcore market logic pretty much is what is what blockchain, you know, is, is what the blockchain is, it's what Bitcoin is. Um, and so, where where does this pan out or, or what does it mean for people like farmers well what it means is that um in the in the very long run of the technological transformations we're watching the, what i would expect to see what i think people should expect to see is um absolutely unimpeachable non-political markets uh, and kind of market logics uh running pretty much every type of system so when it comes to water control or access to water um, who gets water and who doesn't get water is going to be uh, purely down to um, incentives and market market logics that no bureaucrat is going to be able to intervene in, right? And so I'm not saying that it's necessarily going to be, you know, like this is not all good. You know, this is it's it, it, this is not at all all good. I'm not saying it's some kind of like perfect utopian thing. It's it's gonna there are gonna be trade offs, but specifically when it comes to bureaucrats and politicians telling you what to do or inserting their values into things. And all of that kind of stuff is going to go away. Um, frankly, I, I think across the board. Um, and so, yeah, I think this, the, the, so, so this is, this is where I'm, where I'm getting at that basically even for the most hardcore physical things that seem like they would never be touched by this, you know, newfangled blockchain stuff. Um, it ultimately will be because uh, the nature of governance is going to be basically overthrown through these uh, blockchain logics is, is how I think about it. As you look out in the world and you see this uh, um, new future, how long does it take for these things to manifest? Are we going to see the, the you know, Bitcoin transformation of the US government in five years, 10 years, 50 years? What does that look like in your mind? Yeah, it's a really good question. It's a hard question. You know, These kind of predictions are always a fool's errand. Um, so, you know, uh, my instinct really is to say I'll pass. I, I don't I don't really have a, a strong uh, prediction on, on these kinds of things, but, you know, I'll be a good sport for the conversation. And, uh, 
say that, I mean, the way I, I personally kind of think about it is, is these, these, the, these big transformations are probably pretty far off, pretty long-term. I think it's always safer to go to err on the side of, of longer. Um, you know, this might be, honestly, it might be, um, 50, hundred, 500 years, you know, is, is the kind of, is the kind of, um, scale that these kind of big, like the nature of the U S government is just like uh, unrecognizably different, uh, because pretty much everything is being governed through, uh, these blockchains. Yeah. That, I mean, that's, that's probably a, you know, a, a 200 years or something. I don't know. Uh, obviously just guessing, but, um, but I think you're already seeing very non-trivial, um, uh, impact. So there, there's going to be milestone. There's going to be like surprising and, and impactful milestones, you know, uh, every, every few years, I would think in, in, until that happens. Yeah, I agree with that. I think, you know, if you go back and look at like the Treaty of Westphalia, then you start looking at what happened after World War One and World War Two, like there were massive changes to the way government structures were, to the way we were organizing our financial systems. And the day that it happened, nobody really knew just how big of a change it would be. And then they start cascading out. So I'm, I'm totally there. This has been a fascinating conversation, Justin. Um, you've talked about the programs that you're running, your courses. If people wanted to learn more, and um, where would they go and what would they find there? Oh, yeah, sure. People can just go to otherlife.co. That's my little media brand. I, I write a newsletter and run a podcast. They're both called Other Life. So that's just otherlife.co, otherlife.co. And yeah, people can sign up uh, to my newsletter. It's all free. And um, yeah, I do courses as well. That's a kind of separate thing. Uh, I do a bunch of courses basically. So uh, there's a course on Deleuze, there's a course on Gerard, there's a course on Ivan Illich, a course on uh, a few other things that we're, that we're building out over time. Uh, but the easiest way to find all of it and keep up to date with all of it is just uh, you know signing up to my newsletter and or the podcast, Other Life. So thanks for letting me uh, plug my work there. Oh, this has been great. Well, Justin Murphy, thank you so much for coming on. I look forward to having you on again sometime. All right, Vance. I appreciate you having me on, man. Thank you very much. Ah, ah, ah.